Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello everyone. I believe it's 12.30, so we'll make a start. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Gloria Strislecki. I'm the Associate Curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And we're standing in Gallery 1 um, in Keepers of Culture, which is a display that I've curated um, to be presented in this year's Tarnandi. Um, before I introduce our special guest today, I just want to acknowledge that we are on Ghana country and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and those emerging. The gallery does stand on Ghana country and will always acknowledge that AXA Ghana Yatanga Yoanti. So right next to me I've got Fiona Salmon. Fiona Salmon is the director of FUMA or Flinders University Museum of Art. Now Fiona is I think very well known to most of you but for those of you who don't know Fiona she's been an arts administrator, a curator and an educator for a long while and has a very enviable CV, I must say. <laughs> but Fiona has extensive experience and knowledge in all things pertaining Manningrida. She worked up in Manningrida in the early 90s to mid 90s, late, late, yeah. And so you can probably see that in this display, I must say I've put a lot of work from Manningrida I was a little bit um, maybe selfish and put a lot more man and greeter than other work. So it seems really apt and appropriate that we've got you today, Fiona. So thank you for joining us and I'll leave it to you. Thank you. Thanks, Gloria. And yes, I always feel very excited to see works, well, woven work, because it's absolutely one of my favourite things that I get uh, drawn into. I've been uh, interested in woven work for um, quite a while. But of course, um, as Gloria said, I did spend a lot of time in Arnhem Land, um, particularly in Manangrida, which was a bit of a powerhouse, if you like, for woven work. And what I wanted to do today is really, rather than speak to individual pieces, but I will talk to Lena's work because I can't go past that one, um, but I wanted to talk really a little bit about, I suppose, the, the, the history of the contemporary um, weaving practices that we see in Western Arnhem Land. So that's not just um, Manangrida, but also um, Gunbalanya or Owen Pelly, as some of you might know it. Um, and so I thought what I'd do is just sort of really give you a bit of a background to that and then reflect then on where we are in the 21st century and that shift um, that we've had with woven work, particularly from seeing it very much as a craft item to something now that's seen and appreciated as high art or fine art, as evidenced in this beautiful display today. Um, so I thought I would actually start by talking about a really important ancestor spirit, um, Yingana. And Yingana is actually a manifestation of the rainbow serpent, um, Ngaliod. You might have heard of Ngaliod. Um, Ngaliod being um, the word used in Guningu to talk about the rainbow serpent. And the rainbow serpent is a... Um, well, the major creator spirit for that top end through Arnhem Land and in fact right through the nation. 
But one of the um, um, incredible things about the rainbow serpent is that it is a transformative being and it can present in a number of different ways. And one of the ways it can present is as yingana, which is the spirit that uh, created particularly, or or the form of the spirit who created the people um, of Western Arnhem Land, but also further north actually um, through Darwin. So the Larrakia are associated with yingana as well. Now this particular spirit presents as a woman with 15 dilly bags um, attached um, to a ring around her head. And it is, the story goes that the, um, the, the, the dilly bags were filled with babies and those babies were set down in the different parts where Yingana travelled as she emerged from the water and travelled into what we now know as Arnhem Land. So if you like... The, the baskets, particularly the conical formed dilly bags, which we have some examples here, have a really, really strong spiritual meaning because they signify the starting point, if you like. The, 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 it, they're a symbol of the womb, if you like. Um, now, there's a really amazing depiction of Yingana um, at... Gunbalanya. Um, so I'm not sure if any of you have visited Gunbalanya on the East Alligator River, just as you cross in from Kakadu. Um, the first indigenous community that you come to is Gunbalanya. And it's on a beautiful lagoon. And it is quite across the lagoon, there are a number of rocky outcrops which are part of the Arnhem Land escarpment. And up on what's known as Inyalak Hill, um, right at the very top, there are five upturned stones which are quite large and which can be seen in the landscape and they're believed to have been created by Yingana in the form of the dilly bag as a symbol of the power of that object. Now in the cave at Inyalak Hill and you can visit that as a, as a visitor to the community, there's a beautiful rock art gallery and there's a picture of Yingana on that rock art gallery. It has been reproduced a number of times and you can find it in books of rock art from that area, but it's an amazingly well-preserved illustration of this spirit figure with the, with the dilly bags um, around her head. So I wanted to start really by um, emphasizing the spiritual significance of these woven forms. Um, They also obviously have a sort of secular use and I'll get to that in a minute, but absolutely they are full of power and meaning. Um, So the dilly bags are also seen, so we see the dilly bags in that particular representation of Yungana, but also we can see the dilly bags represented in lots of other rock art from across the region, particularly in what are described as the dynamic figures. So these are um, mimi-like figure forms, and we can see some mimis represented in the, in the barks on the back. I can see the one by Mikabagu 
and also the um, sculptures behind us, the tall, skinny figures. Um, they look fairly static in, in those works, but on some of the rock art, you see them in very dynamic kind of poses, so running, fishing, fighting, um, and you'll often see dilly bags attached um, to, to those figures and to those narratives. Um, those, those particular figures have been um, dated back to 20,000 years, um, that sort of dynamic rock art period. Um, so 20,000 years old, so we know then um, from the rock art record that these have been made for a very, very long time. So in the 1890s, there was a buffalo hunter called Paddy Cahill who went to Arnhem Land um, buffalo hunting and he later set up a camp there at, at um, Gunbalanya or Owen Pelly as it was called then and he became very interested in, in the baskets and the Aboriginal people who lived in the region and we know from the records that he traded flour, tea, tobacco in exchange for basket work as well as barks and other things as well but really from the late um, 19th century those baskets were being traded and also later um, you will have heard of Baldwin Spencer who made a number of expeditions um, into Central Australia but also into Arnhem Land um, and particularly Gunbalanya in the um, I think it was 1922 and um, Baldwin Spencer um, as an he was trained as a biologist actually and he had come to Australia from, from London as, uh, to take up the um, foundation chair of biology at the University of Melbourne but he also was very interested in collections and ethnographic material and I believe he was involved in transferring the Pitt Rivers collections of ethnographic material from the museum in Kensington to Oxford University. So he came to Australia with a real interest in material culture and he, he had had a number of expeditions into Central Australia but also into Arnhem Land. And through his association with Paddy Kale, he also collected a lot of fibre work. He's most known really for his collections of bark paintings, which have eventually found their way to what is now Museum Victoria. Um, it was known in his day as the National Museum of Victoria, and he was honorary director of that museum, and he... Um, he gifted those works, the barks, um, to or left the barks to the museum. They're quite famously you know, documented and have been um, recorded and exhibited. But he also he also had about 115 baskets in that collection as well. So there, so that's just kind of um, I suppose the starting point of when baskets started to make their way into institutions, but very much as um, objects of ethnographica, if you like. But then later, um, in 1948, um, there was the American-Australian scientific expedition to Arnhem Land, and I believe there are a couple of bucks that have um, came from that expedition. Now, that expedition was led by Charles Mountford, and Charles Mountford was quite interesting in that he was a um, self-trained anthropologist, if you like, and he didn't have a lot of respect from the sort of Sydney-centric departments of 
anthropology that had been established under the Burnts, and his work was really discredited in academic circles. But what um, Charles Mountford really did, if you like, was he started to look at the baskets through the lens of art as opposed to ethnography. And when he made his collections, so that, that scientific expedition through Arnhem Land um, was about nine months long, and they had, uh, I, had, I think they had a few months on Groot Island, a few months at Yudhikara, and then a few months at Owen Pelly. And I believe they collected 23 tonnes worth of um, scientific specimens, um, which included um, uh, basketry and fibre work as well. So th what Mountford did, which was really pretty out there, I suppose, in the day, was he decided that th that collection, so particularly the bark paintings, um, would be divided among the galleries. So not the museums that existed at the time, but actually the galleries. And each gallery could select 24 works from the Bach collection. And I think these Bachs here are from that original kind of distribution um, that happened as a result of that. So really interesting because that was, I suppose, the starting point when Aboriginal um, you know, creative practice started to be looked at in, in a different way. With regards to um, the basketry particularly, it wouldn't be really until I think the um, late you know, 20th century that it started to be um, appreciated as fine art, but we'll get to that in a minute. I wanted to um, point out just some of the um, beautiful features of the conical baskets that we can see on the wall here. A number are from Owen Pelly, but I think we've got some from other communities as well. And what you can see in this, just this little display is the extraordinary um, range of techniques, um, but also the colours, you know, beautiful colours. The, the materials themselves, it's a pandanus fibre, which is collected by the women, it's a hugely labour-intensive process to, to um, remove the sp spiky ends of the pandanus leaf. First, we have to collect it from the swamps in the mosquitoes and the croc-infested waters. You collect it, it's very hard work. Once the leaves have been collected, they have to be prepared. So there's a stripping back of the outer husk of the, um, the plant. Um, they're left to dry and then the dyeing process takes place. Some of the dyes are from roots, so the yellow particularly is a root, a plant root. Um, I know the pink comes from a berry, um, but it's very seasonal. It's very seasonal where you collect these, uh, when you can collect these colours. So uh, the women who make work talk about collecting colour when they're, when they're collecting these dyes. It is seasonal, but it's also location specific. So often you can tell um, from the colours that have been used where exactly they have been made. And in Manangrita, for instance, we didn't see a lot of pink. We tended to see these um, earthier tones, um, whereas um, pinks um, you would see more frequently a bit further to the, to the west. But that, of course, is, there's, that's not a hard and fast rule. It was just something that we noticed at that time. So some of the baskets have a really tight weave, 
um, and some of them have a looser weave. Now they would have been used for different sorts of um, collecting. People would wear the string around their head and um, collect, so they'd have two hands free for collecting. Um, berries and things um, might go into the ones with a sort of a, a slightly denser weave or a really close weave basket would be used for collecting something like sugar bag or bush honey, um, something like that. The black baskets are quite unusual, I would say, that they're not, um, they're not so common. Um, and also the works that are painted would have uh, traditionally been really associated for ceremony. Um, and uh, ceremonial dilly bags worn by both men and women. And one of the interesting things with the men who would, and that association with ceremony, when a man, when a young boy, you know, with the whole um, cycle of coming of age, uh, sort of a key moment in that sort of um, time in a young man's life would be when he made his first big kill, whether it was a kangaroo or a big barramundi or whatever. And um, the bones of that um, fish or mammal would then be cleaned up and carried with the, with the boy into manhood in a dilly bag. So, you know, important things then that were carried and treasured for life. Larger, larger dilly bags were also used in Western Arnhem Land um, for the bones of the deceased. So some of you might be familiar with the hollow log coffins that are used more over Yirrkala in eastern Arnhem Land and also in central Arnhem Land. But in the west around Gunbalanya, um, once people had passed away and their bones had been, you know, gone through the process of decay and then the, they would be cleaned up and painted and important people, their bones would go into sort of woven baskets that then would be stored in caves and turd in caves. So um, lots of different uses. Very large versions of these um, baskets um, were used as fish traps, so a big open weave could be used um, in the rivers as, as a fish trap. The other thing I wanted to point out just with the baskets um, also is the, is the coil stitching that you can see up in this top basket here. Um, particularly because that actually is not a traditional woven form from the top end. We associate that weaving stitch, the coiling and the bundling, particularly with southeastern Australia and we know um, from the beautiful work by Sonia Rankin that you can see next to it, that is connected to the um, basket makers, the Ngarrangeri basket makers of the lower Murray River. And we know that, I think it was 1922, that a teacher, Margaret Matthews, who was known as Greta, um, she um, went to work on Goulburn Island and she was working with the, women, with the girls as a teacher but also with the women. And she was teaching them this coil bundling stitch. And she had learned that from the Ngarrangeri women when she had previously spent some time in Adelaide and um, at Glenelg and also further down at the Coorong. So it's actually Greta Matthews um, who, who took this, that coiling um, to, to the top end, to Goulburn Island. Um, there was a Methodist mission there. And she 
you know, imparted that skill that was picked up very, very quickly. And then through the, you know, familial connections and the people coming and going from Goulburn Island, that technique um, was learned very quickly across all of Arnhem Land. And so you see that coiling really right across Arnhem Land today. The other thing about the Methodist mission and missions often was that the traditional practices were really discouraged. So I know on Goulburn Island that the twining and the conical forms of the baskets um, were, were not, you know, were not encouraged. Rather, the, the coiling technique was preferred and that was partly to do also with the fact that the coiling technique also lent itself to sort of more Western shapes and forms. So you could make fruit baskets and baby baskets and flat sort of coiled mats for the placemats for the dinner table, etc. And they were of particular interest to the missions because they could be sold, easily sold onto, onto the, into the tourist market, which was kind of beginning to become interested in these things. And so it was very much a form of income. So really through the mid 20th century, if you like, there was this emphasis on the utilitarian nature of the, of the baskets. And, um, you know, sort of, I suppose also because it being women's work, not being taken seriously as art, and also the value just being diminished, you know, that, that incredible labour that goes into the, into the making, but also the knowledge of the plants. It's quite phenomenal. But none of that was really reflected in the, in the price of the works that were sold. They were just um, you know, into the tourist market and a bit of a sort of a cottage industry was created. So that was sort of happening, that sort of took off in the early 20th century and sort of mid 20th century we saw a lot of the, the coiling and as I said we can still see the coiling, it's very prevalent today. And people have really made it their own. So the, certainly you can, you can find nowadays coiling and open twine, you know, things that have come together. Um, people are, you can see here, really inventive in where they put the different stitches together, the different colours together. And often a type of stitch um, will be a signature for a um, particular artist. So really, um, you know, beautiful works and with that very, very long tradition that reaches back um, into millennium. So I will also then so focus a little bit on the dilly bags, the woven bags as well. Um, similarly, you can see some different stitching types. There's a sort of a knotted stitch and then also a looped stitch. This is a bit of a bundling and a looped stitch that's mixed together and you can also see in this one the feathers that have been woven into the, into the basket. The more decorative works would have been associated with, um, with ceremony historically. The bags, if you like, unlike the baskets, they're made from a brachiitan, um, so it's like a sand palm fibre. Also quite hard work to collect and very, very um, you know, labour intense to create because the string needs to be woven first and that is a, a rolling that you do on your thigh. Um, if you've never done it before, very painful. But the women who've been doing it for a long time, it's just experts, know what they're doing, obviously. 
So they're the, they're the bags that you can see um, made of the brachiitin fibres. This one also very beautiful with the um, lorikeet feathers in there as well. But the bigger, the bigger installation that you can see here is um, by Lena Yarankura. So Lena is really has been making work for over sort of 30 years, and uh, for a long time with her late husband Bob Budawal. Bob sadly um, passed away not that long ago. Um, but like many women, Lena learnt to um, weave from her mother, Lena Jamaraiku, and so the basic sort of stitching techniques they learnt together, as she learnt from her mum. And then um, with her mother, they started making in the sort of early 1990s sort of whimsical three-dimensional uh, forms of animals, so dogs, quolls, bandicoots, so very, very quirky mammals, uh, quite lovely. And they, um, they really caught the eye of, I suppose, curators because it was very much a new, a new direction, if you like. Um, people had become familiar by that time with the baskets and the bags, but the three-dimensional work was really very, very new. And in 1994, um, Lena won um, the 3D award at the Telstra Aboriginal Art Award in, in Darwin at the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory. And again, she won it a couple of years later with a large a figure, sort of not dissimilar to this, but much larger, um, that was um, depicting the Yalkyalk spirit or mermaid spirit, which is on her country, so a particular spirit that's um, found across Arnhem Land, but particularly around the waterholes, the um, freshwater waterholes. This particular um, work uh, that you can see here comprises of a number of different elements, and it's a new acquisition, which is fantastic for the um, art gallery, and it's called Ngalbenbe, and it relates to... Um, a story about the sun and you can see the sun um, depicted here in the centre of the work and the story uh, it's actually you can find it on YouTube with Bob and Lena talking in Gune and Remberanga their, their language um, to, and they talk about this story and essentially it's about two men who want to go fishing they go out only to find that the river and the, and the waterhole is swollen and they, can't, and they can't fish there, it's too dangerous. So they go home and then they remember another place that they can go to, a place, a special place with spiritual, um, uh, which, which is sort of created by their ancestors. It's a place that they're responsible for. So they decide to go and see what the water levels are at that place. Um, and when they're there, they um, make a fire and the fire ignites the spirit of that place and the water dries up a little bit and, and recedes so that they're able, able to fish in that place. So, they, so while the water is drying, the story goes that they go back to the camp again. They make these fish traps, the butterfly fish nets they're sometimes referred to, which are used for scooping the fish out of water. So they make the nets when they go back to camp again and then they bring all the kids out with them and they get the kids to line up um, 
with the flow of the water and so they create a, um, if you like, a channel to direct the fish into the nets. So the story is really one about abundance. It's also a, a warning story not to, not to sort of go into the swollen rivers and to be careful. Um, but it's also a story about sharing. So when you um, hear um, Bob and Lena talk about that story, um, they also talk about the fact that all the fish that they caught, the abundance of fish that was caught, was all wrapped up in paperback bark and taken back to the camp to share with everybody. Um, they also talk about message sticks that people would send out to wider community to let them know that there had been a big catch. So it's a story about, um, about sharing, about living together. So a really, really beautiful work. So Lena was really important I think, in terms of lifting the profile of woven work, of, of woven work in Arnhem Land, um, in, in that she had won those two, two big awards. But I think there are another couple of developments in the, in the late 1990s that were also really important. There's a couple of big, there's a big exhibition that toured out of Manangrita called The Language of Weaving that was curated by Margie West um, and it travelled for about three years. Um, absolutely stunning exhibition. Um, but also um, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney um, uh, entered an agreement with Manangrita Arts and Culture and they took in a collection of about 600 works, 600 woven works into the MCA um, and that collection is held in trust um, for, for the Manangrita community. Um, but the work is all, you know, there's a huge number of works and the work was um, curated, if you like, or that collection was curated by Diane Moon, who was the um, art advisor at Manangrita at the time, with the women in selecting the most important works that, that should be held, you know, for the future, for future generations. And there was an amazing exhibition um, that came out, uh, well, sort of celebrated that agreement, if you like, in 1994, oh, I think it was 1994 or five. Um, Diane Moon was very involved in, in presenting that show. And that was really the first time that baskets had been presented on the wall, like, like you would a painting. And the sculptural elements of the baskets were really emphasised through the lighting, the play with shadows um, and the, if you like the, um, the, the spiritual essence of those baskets really started to come to life and I think until then people really hadn't engaged with the fibre works in that way. People had seen them in museums, in cabinets, you know, very much in that sort of ethnographic kind of um, mode. So the, the MCA um, exhibition was really a bit of a turning point for that. And here we are today with the beautiful baskets that we can see as part of um, this exhibition. And um, that's probably it. So I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. <laughs> And very happy to take some questions. So the, that was a question about the lorikeet feathers. And um, yes, people would eat anything that was, you know, the feathers for anything would be eaten. Yeah. It's not the feathers eaten, but the bird <laughs> eaten. Yes. Yes, question at the back. 
Thank you, Fiona, for joining us, Natalia. <laughs> Can everyone please give a warm round to Fiona?